This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Well, you have to look at the root. You have to look at the way schools work. You have to look at the way culture works. You have to look at the way that people are, certain people are allowed into rooms and certain people aren't. I don't mean that racially. I mean that in terms of class or in terms mm. of, uh, in terms of cultures. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish. We helped birth the music business. It's one of the things that we were allowed to be in in the 1920s. The clothes, the clothing industry, law, or the entertainment business were the three that we were actually, go on, you lot go into that. You know, I mean, my children are West African and it would be very difficult for me to persuade their grandparents that the entertainment business was a great, was a great business for them to be in. Over the seasons, at some point, you'll have heard me and my guests talk about some of the challenges working in the music industry and what it can be like as a woman, and more specifically a black woman, in a predominantly male space. I've been thinking a lot about how black culture shapes mainstream culture, so sometimes it can feel like we're everywhere. But actually, when it comes to positions of leadership and ownership, Female band leaders, women producers, label or studio owners, songwriters, women of colour who are composers or arrangers, who aren't the pretty face in a band or some kind of object of desire, but behind the mixing desk, we really are few in number. It is changing. In its 2020 Music Diversity Report, industry-funded body UK Music shared some key findings. The proportion of women in the industry is up from 45.3% in 2016 to 49.6% in 2020. Black, Asian and other ethnic minorities and senior executive levels is up from 17.8% in 2018 to 19.9% in 2020. 
but that means only one in five people of colour are in senior exec positions. The number of women in the industry between the ages of 45 to 64 drops from 38.7% in 2018 to 35% in 2020. To be honest, I'm not surprised. This industry can be exhausting. We still have a long way to go. And I should say that this is only UK data. I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, especially the States. But things are slowly improving. You can read the full report in the podcast blurb. Personally, or fortunately for me, I have for the most part been around men who love and respect women, who don't condescend, who don't have a problem being led by a woman, who take instruction, who are safe people to be around, and who also advocate for you. My guest today, writer, composer, producer, publisher, and A&R, that is artist and repertoire manager, Felix Howard, is one of those people. To really, truly finish a, the writing of a thing and not have it open-ended is, you know, a creative's worst nightmare is finishing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I do that a lot. Come in, finish it up and say, no, no, it's done. You know, you're not always right, but it's a thing you can help people with. I think it's always, my creative process has always been helping people finish theirs. I met Felix some years ago. We move in similar circles and he's just one of those people that if he can, he helps me out. He's quite straightforward in that way. Felix started off as a child model. For those of you who are old enough, you may remember him from the Madonna video, Open Your Heart, or on the front cover of The Face magazine. Since then, he has forged a career as a songwriter for Sia, The Sugar Babes, Amy Winehouse, amongst others. He has also worked in publishing and as an A&R manager, signing the likes of Calvin Harris, Lana Del Rey, Beverly Knight and UK national treasure Sir Tom Jones. He was vice president of A&R for record label EMI and Buddha in the US and is currently director of A&R at BMG. You can read his full bio and for a bit of nostalgia, check out the videos he was in back in the day. All details are in the podcast blurb. We talk about being in the music industry, and for Felix, it's very much a family business. His siblings, his father and grandfather, all having careers in the industry. As he calls it, I quote, a severe lack of imagination. We talk about the role of an A&R manager, about changes in the music business, about different creative approaches he takes when working with artists, artists like Amy Winehouse. With somebody like Amy, you have to get out of the way because she's that good. You know, uh, and so she's really, she's not like anybody else that you're going to end up working with because there's such an unbelievable amount of talent in one person that what you have to do is show the person, uh, you only have to show the person once. And after that, you never need to show them again because they're that good. They learnt it then and there. Mm. You know, none of the people that worked on Frank worked on Back to Black because... She wrote the entirety of Back to Black. I think she wrote 87% of it. I think Ronson's got a co-write and I think there's a Naz sample or something. And the rest of it is entirely her. She wrote the whole thing. We talk about the importance of diversity and representation across the board. We talk about allyship and tokenism. You'll hear me laugh a lot in this interview because, well, Felix is a funny guy. His humour is deadpan. He has that mix of real cynicism on the one hand and deep passion for the industry he knows and the music he loves on the other. Why do you think that is? Because it's a terrible life. (laughs) For 90% of 
of musicians. It's a it's a hiding to nothing and a heartbreak. And that's if you're good. We talk about music so much that instead of having one or two songs on his playlist, as I normally do with my guests, he gave me so many artists that I ended up creating a special playlist. I've called it Felix Holds Up the Ladder. The link can be found in the podcast blurb. Felix Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. It's a sunny day. Can't complain. It is. <laughs> Indeed. You know, we've, we've, we're down to the basics after COVID. Dog's been out for a walk. Work doesn't suck. I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> um, it was funny looking through your bio because obviously I know you already, but I've never done research. And so I should say um, you are one of those people that has does lots and lots of things. Writer, composer, uh, musician, A&R person, music in music publishing. But one of my favourite things is uh, that you were in Madonna's Open Your Heart to Me and in Mantronics. What's the, the a Mantronics tune? I've forgotten the name of it. Got to Have Your Love. That's it. But the, my favourite was just seeing you dancing with Madonna. And also, I have to say, maybe it's my age. I was like, why is this grown woman kissing this young boy? But... um. That was just my little old lady Mary Whitehouse thing. But it was really nice to see you in it. It was like a nice flashback to to childhood. It's all a very long time ago. <laughs> but tell me, let's I always ask people a little bit about their origin story. Like how did you get into music? I've always been in music. My father was in music. My grandfather was in music. Um, I grew up inside the music business. I didn't... Mm-hmm. Uh, me being in music uh, presents a severe lack of imagination. Um, and I never did anything else. What my dad did look really fun when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have not really strayed from the uh, family path. My brother is a famous acoustic guitar player. My sister worked at Ticketmaster for 15 years. I've been in the business for 30 something, 35, 36 years. My father was in it for his whole life. My grandfather was a professional bass player and a songwriter for Vera Lynn and people of the war generation. I grew up within within it. Okay. And so I guess so you're like, you know, you had no choice but to do what you do. And there was, you do tons, of, really there was well. tons of choice. They didn't want me to go into it. They didn't want me to go into it. They wanted me to get a, you know, quote unquote, proper job, which of yes. course I've never had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were very, uh, not discouraging, never discouraging, but they weren't particularly happy about it. They didn't want me to yeah. be a musician, that's for sure. Why do you think that is? Because it's a terrible life. <laughs> for 90% of, of musicians, it's a, it's a hiding to nothing and a heartbreak. And that's if you're good, you know. Um, and I was all right. I wasn't that great. Um, I'm a better writer than I am a player, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I... Um, you know, you find you find your way as a kid, I suppose. 
But no, they were never, they, were, they knew exactly what being a musician was. Perhaps more so in the 70s and 80s than now. But, I mean, you say you're all right. You know, you've written for the likes of Sia, Sugar Babes, Amy Winehouse. We should probably talk about Amy Winehouse. Um, you wrote on Frank and Back to Black. No, I just wrote on Frank. And what does, so So tell me, let's talk a little bit about your process in the studio because you do so many different things. So let's talk about a writing. Did you write the music, the words, both? How, does, how did it work when you were in the studio? Depends gig to gig. There are some people who don't need any help in one area. So you go into the other area where you can be of service. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there are some people who don't need any help in the music, but they do need help in the lyric. There are some people who don't need any help uh, they they come in with a pad full of words and they need some chords or they need the start of a beat or they need the start just to start them off. Or they mm-hmm. might need someone because they've got half an idea and a really good hook but no verse or middle eight to come in and help them colour in, you know, and, and finish. In what I do, finishing the song is quite an important part of it. It's very easy to start things. It's very difficult to finish to really truly finish the writing of a thing and not have it open ended is, you know, a creative's worst nightmare is finishing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that a lot. Come in, finish it up, and say, no, no, it's done. You know, you're not always right, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a thing you can help people with. I think it's always my creative process has always been helping people finish theirs. Okay, that's interesting. So, so take. Sorry, go ahead. Or start theirs. Sometimes it'll start theirs, I guess. Okay. So so take me through, um, say, when you, you were doing Frank, is a, I mean, I mean, from what I've seen of, like, you know, documentaries on Amy, she kind of seemed to know what she was doing. She seemed to have a clear sense of what she was doing. Amy's an, an, an anomaly in that she was a genius and you only sort of get to... I mean, if you meet two or three of those in your lifetime, then you've met a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I met her, she was 16, 17. She already had pretty much every jazz chord on the guitar down. Mm-hmm. She was a fantastic jazz guitarist mm-hmm. and maybe the best chord work person I ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Like her passing chords, she just knew them all, all of them. Every... Mm-hmm. Every, you know, ninth, every, you know, every one of them she knew. So Mm. you start out with somebody like that. And really what you're doing is you're helping a, you're helping a structural path emerge in the craft of the song. You can't have a 26 minute song with no chorus. (laughs) Unless it's Sun Ra. (laughs) But if you're Amy, you know, she wanted, you sent me flying to be that. And I was like, well, I, I love it because, you know, I love Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, but Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands has a chorus. There's a song by Bob Dylan called Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, and it's, this, it's the whole side of a record. Mm-hmm. on the back of uh, Blonde and Blonde. And I was like, look, I love Sad Lady of the Lowlands, but, but that has a chorus. 
So why don't we put a chorus in this thing? You can still have it 12, 20 minutes long. I don't care about that, but give it a hook. Mm. And so, you know, my my part of of that tune is making her put a hook into it, writing the hook with her and then condensing and condensing and condensing the song down to a, I think it's six and a half minutes long. And I think mm-hmm. we started out at something like 27 minutes. Wow. So, so with somebody like Amy, you don't need to, with somebody like Amy, you have to get out of the way because she's that good, you know? Uh, and so she's really at, she's not like anybody else that you're going to end up working with because there's such an unbelievable amount of talent in one person that what you have to do is show the person, uh, you only have to show the person once. And after Mm -hmm. that, you never need to show them again because they're that good. They learnt it then and there. Mm -hmm. You know, none of the people that worked on Frank worked on Back to Black because she wrote the entirety of Back to Black. Wow. I think she wrote 87% of it. I think Ronson's got a co-write and I think there's a Nas sample or something. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is entirely her. She wrote the whole thing. So by the time Frank was done, and she hated Frank because, of course, she hated Frank. It's her first thing. She was still learning where her parameter was in terms of her being comfortable as an artist. And she, mm-hmm. you know, Back to Black is entirely her vision, brilliantly interpolated by Salam and Mark. Um, and so, yeah, she's a bit of a, I wouldn't say she's a good example. I think she's out on her own, really. Interesting. Interesting. I think she was definitely out on her own. That's, uh, well, it's funny. I remember seeing her live once. I don't even remember that record store off Carnaby Street, Deal Real. Do you remember it back? Yeah. My friends ran it and they used to have live events just like acoustic things. And I remember I, Frank had come out, but back, she hadn't made Back to Black yet. And I couldn't believe it because she was just there with her guitar on this tiny little podium doing her thing. And I was like, oh, okay. It was really, 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 really interesting. I, I didn't know that that's kind of what, how she made music and that's how she wrote. It was really, really interesting. She was a classic songwriter in this, in the way that she would, sit there on her own and come up with something brilliant or sit down with somebody and bring in a load of ideas or come in completely fresh and just start something with somebody. She could do everything. That one had it all. So, mm. you know, she could, she could do anything she wanted. Really. Amazing. And so, yeah, so you, you know, we know that you write, but I'd like to talk about, sort of the industry side of what you do. So less the creative side, but the A&R side. So when did you get into being an A&R manager? You've been at EMI, Bude. Is it, do you call it Bude or Buddy? How do you pronounce that? Neither. <laughs> okay. Had- Buddha. Buddha. <laughs> okay. So Buddha. <laughs> Buddha is the oldest working publishing company in Germany. Right. Two brothers came back from the war, refused to move to New York or London, went back to Berlin, and in a smoking Berlin of, I think, 1947 or 48, started a publishing company. Uh, That was the Buddhas. 
and they published everybody. They they looked after everybody for Germany from then until now. They're a huge and amazing, hist- you know, storied company. They're just great people and incredible people. Um, and they've got some great copyrights. They've got Forever Young, for instance. Um, they've got some brilliant songs. Um, anyway, no, I, I started out as an A&R man, I think... Before I knew what that was, I think a lot of people do. Um, and I was hired as an A&R man while I was a songwriter. And I still didn't really know what the extent of the gig was. Maybe I still don't. Um, mm-hmm. But Guy Moot hired me when I, I signed to Guy Moot, who was an A&R man at EMI Publishing. When he got the big job, he hired me as an A&R man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of his writers. At the time, this was a controversial move because how could a songwriter become an A&R man was something that was said quite a lot. Right. Uh, now it's much more common, of course, and Guy is way ahead of his time on a number of things, not just that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he put me in because he thought I was good at networking and sticking different people in the room and making them do stuff, um, mm-hmm. which turned out to be you know, accurate. Um, and so that's how that process started for me is my A&R man turned into my boss and I became an A&R man. Right. And and so for those that might not know, what does, what does, art, A&R is artist and repertoire, but kind of like, what does that entail? A&R is a very uh, maligned term because an A&R man can be somebody who finds acts on SoundCloud an A&R man can also be somebody who writes out string instrumentals and, you know, does choral arrangements. A&R mm-hmm. can, mean an, it can mean almost anything in the, in the same way that manager or agent can mean almost anything. Usually what it means is you sign acts, make their records or publish their songs uh, mm-hmm. and then put them out through the osmosis of marketing and promotion and gigs and... The, the telling of everybody that the telling to everybody that the, the product is in the market. So mm-hmm. you find an act, say you find a, you know, I don't know, a little band or a songwriter in a little flat or whatever it is. And you mm-hmm. have enough delusion to believe that in two years they could be a, you know, a, a superstar or at least a going concern. <laughs> You stake your bet and your reputation and somebody else's money, um, mostly, sometimes, rather a lot of it, in order to making them successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've done it in I've done it in publishing and I've done it in records and they're very different aspects of the A and R process, but they're still the thing in the middle is still the same. You sign an act and you try and get it to the, you know, top of the hit parade, you know, <laughs> or or on the road or on Spotify or on TikTok or on Insta or all of the mm. all of the ways that we can now, we now consume music. Well, I mean, 
you seem to know what you're doing. You signed, what's it, Calvin Harris, Lana Del Rey, Emily Kay, James Vincent McMorrow, Tinchy Strider, Sam Sparrow, Beverly Knight, Sir Tom Jones. I mean, you clearly seem to uh, know where the good stuff is. Yeah, I mean, those are all very different signings. Like, Tom Jones was an old geezer by the time he needed a he needed a deal for a one-off album he was making. Calvin Harris mm-hmm. was a kid. Emily Kay was a young kid. Lana Del Rey was somebody who uh, came completely done in terms of right. image and in terms of her vision. So mm-hmm. I guess what I mean by that is, is you don't ever get the same thing twice. You don't get... They're never there's always something about them that's advanced and brilliant and other stuff about them that you have to work on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I recently was part of the team that signed Lewis Capaldi and Lewis was, you know, a fabulous songwriter and just needed a couple of years to get in front of kids. And then, of course, it happened. But Lewis was successful in 2020, but we did it in 2017. Yeah. So there's always something that you work on. There's always something that they're brilliant at. Um, but it's never the same every time. There's no there's no cookie cutter. People would like there to be a cookie cutter because it would make the music business much more simple. And there are people involved in the data process who are constantly selling us uh, ways that algorithms can break down the judged popularity of songs that haven't come out yet, but they haven't got it quite right yet. It's hard to do that. It's hard to, I guess, bottle a creative process. Mm-hmm. And is there a is there an aspect to it that you like more than others? Because I guess I mean, like you say, the music the music industry, you do so many different things, which is exciting, I guess, and sometimes exhausting. But is there an aspect to it that really that you enjoy more than others? I enjoy the development process, or rather, I've been successful in the in finding people within the development process that have begun on to be successful. Um, but at this point, I, you know, I've liked the showbiz element. I've liked the, you know, uh, dark underbelly element. I've liked the gig live festival element. I think I just like the whole thing. I mean, there are things about it that are boring, but that's every job. Mm-hmm. Um and there are some horrendous people in it. But again, that's life, right? Um, and I've probably been one of those horrendous people at least, you know, four or five times. So, yeah, I I, I don't... I, I guess the process of it, the music part of it, is something that I really love. And, the, mm-hmm. and finding somebody and being excited by by it and playing it all the time and being compelled by it the uh, you know and having a compelling proposition um is an exciting part of your life if you get to if you're lucky enough to get to do what i do Mm. it's a it's about a compelling proposition it's about Mm. having something that you cannot get out of your head that you are obsessed by you're saying there's a fire there and there's no fire at all. And people think you're mad. And then you either are mad because there was no fire there or two years later, the, you know, they're ablaze and everyone thinks you're smart for five minutes, which, of course, you're not. 
but for five minutes you get to be adjudged as a smarty. Is there anybody that that's happened with? Yeah, most. I mean, that's happened a lot in my life. But what you have to understand is they were going to... It's a bit like Columbus discovering America. America was already there. You know, mm-hmm. he thought he was going to India. So, you, you know, a lot of the time I think you have to take your ego out, of, or or at least it's healthier to take your ego out of the process and understand that that events conspire to allow you to find this person and and work with them rather than Mm -hmm. you discovered this massive act which went on to you know I think if you I think if you focus too much on that then you'll lose your way Mm -hmm. and and that you have to in fact remove your ego from the equation and that's Mm -hmm. a healthier way of working in in A&R you know, I mean, yes, I can make decisions because I'm experienced that are smarter than kids that aren't. But, you know, I work with I work with young people all the time and they're much smarter than me generally. And they have much better ideas than me generally. It's just that I've been doing it a bit longer. So I mm. I try and listen to everything, I think, mm-hmm. and just try and make my way through the process. Yeah. I can't remember what your question was. And that was a really long ramble. I'm sorry. No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. I asked you what you look for and you've told me what you look for. Yeah, just a compelling a, a compelling proposition. And that can be in any genre. That can be in any... It doesn't matter what it looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, I just always look for the thing that I can't get out of my head. It's interesting because part of the theme for this season, I'm thinking about how arts, the arts, can impact sort of social change and respond to particularly in the age we're in with George Floyd, anti-racism stuff. And I was having a read of, so UK Music publishes all this data once a year. And, um, you know, sort of the makeup of who's in the industry. So we know that currently the in 2019, obviously pre-COVID, the UK um, music contributed £5.8 billion to the UK economy. Live music, interestingly, being the strongest, which is we'll see what happens now, you know, because we've had a year of essentially no live music. That's going to snap back, though, pretty hard. People, Kids are going to want to go out. There's going to be, you know, once everyone gets the jab or enough people get the jab, then that'll snap back. I imagine it'll plummet, it'll crater for 20 and be half as okay in 21 and then back to full or even exceed capacity in 22. Yeah, but I, I I I agree with you actually. I do, I do. But what was interesting was the figures of women and people of colour in these spaces. So PRS, which is, you know, writers and creators, only women make up only 17% of their membership. This was data that they published a while ago, but it hasn't been up I, I don't know what it is currently, but this is what they have on the website. And then in terms of women in the industry, it's going up, it's like 49.6%. But people that are black, Asian, ethnic minor, and other age, um, ethnic minorities, it's 19.9% in the sort of senior positions, which is only like one in five people of colour in senior positions. And I'm just... I, five years ago, that was half of that or quarter of that. And 10 years ago, I imagine there was maybe one. 
Mm. Like one mm. person. Darkest Bees was the only person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Darkest was the MD of Ireland. And he was the first black MD. Mm. And that wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think that what we have to do as a generation, I think it's about the about the intersectionality of sex, race, and everything, where all of those where all of those crossroads lie, because there's many of them. I think that it's incumbent on us to make sure that we are the last generation who look like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are ways you can be a ally and there are ways that you can be a hindrance to that mm-hmm. process. Um, but I think it's healthier for the business to have more women in it because men are trash. Um, I think it's healthier for, you know, there to be more of every type of human to be in the music business because it, it, it just makes people behave better, honestly. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think everybody of my generation, especially, not especially, I think everybody of my generation and up, so the Gen Xs and the millennials, mm-hmm. sorry, the Gen Xs and the boomers. Yes. Should have a guilty conscience. Right. About the way things were. Not necessarily that it was our fault because, you know, we just got here and did the best that we could. But I think that we should have a guilty conscience and try and change that stuff. And it's the way that you try and change it that means something because you can, you know, you can put a black spot on your Instagram every, you know, every day you're supposed to take the day off. But that's Mm -hmm. hypocrisy, really, because you're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. You're just saying, yeah, I agree, man, you know. So there there are ways you can actively help and there are ways that you can just look like you care. And those two Mm -hmm. things are very different. You know, activism on social media and activism Mm. are massive, massively different things. But I'm I'm actually pleasantly surprised that it's 19%. I thought it was way less still. You know, I don't... I don't know that a parity is, or a majority even, is possible because of the way that structural racism is set up in the United Kingdom and in America and in Europe. Because you're dealing with forces that are much bigger than the music business. But if we're dealing with black music, which, by the way, we're all dealing with black music because it's all black music, you know, this music business that we're in then you'd at least like it to be half, if not more, if not a majority. But I don't know that kids who are growing up always get presented with the opportunities that they could be in the music business. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because we're probably, well, we're definitely missing out on some brilliant talent, mm. you know? Okay. So you've said some interesting things here that I want to follow through with you. Let's work backwards. The thing about structural, how structural racism is set up, in your opinion, how is it set up? And I guess, how does it play out in certain instances? But, you know, firstly, how is it set up? Well, you have to look at the root. You have to look at the way schools work. You have to look at the way culture works. You have to look at the way that people are, certain people are allowed into 
rooms and certain people aren't. I don't mean that racially. I mean that in terms of class or in terms mm. of uh, in terms of cultures. You know, it's very difficult. You know, I'm I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, we helped birth the music business. It's mm-hmm. one of our. It's one of the things that we were allowed to be in in the 1920s. The clothes, mm-hmm. the clothing industry, law, or the entertainment business were the three that we were actually. Go on, you lot go into that, you know. But it's very difficult for, you know, I mean, my children are West African and it would be very difficult for me to persuade their grandparents that the entertainment business was a great was a great business for them to be in. Mm. They would think, well, why don't, that's, you know, no. You know, mm. I want them to be a lawyer or a doctor or a, you know, and and they're, and they're right, of course, you know, to a certain extent. There's a lot of cultural stuff that has to change. And it's not, you know, it's incumbent on, I guess there's two, there's two sides to it, isn't there? There's the side that everybody should be allowed to have a go at everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, that has to change over many years, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it has to come from, it has to come from the people that have the, it, it has to come from the gatekeepers and it also has mm-hmm. to come from the people who want to have a look, who want to walk through the gates. You know, everybody should be right. allowed to try all of these things. Um, I think that, you know, having worked with black executives my whole career, I think that they're there because they're incredibly talented, mm-hmm. you know, and so, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird one because it, it, it's a weird one because it's one of those things that changes over a twenty or thirty year period. Yeah. You know, and it's changed. It's changed a lot in the last ten years in a really positive and brilliant way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want there to be more of it. You know, I think that it's a lot easier to get men in the business than it is women why do you think that is i have some thoughts but well because it's a because you know all industry is a sausage factory essentially it's all boys all the time it's all male ego it's all winning and losing and this sort of awful thrust um it doesn't have to be it's better with more it's better with more women in it I've been trying recently to start a couple of programs with the PRS and the Ivers to get more women in the roots of the business, in the A&R, in law, in agents, in promo, in all of those things to start bursaries for women to start in all aspects of the business mm. um, so that you seed them into early positions so that if they're really determined and good enough, because in the end, you know, you've got to be good enough and want to do it then you'll come up through the business and change the business because you'll bring in other people with you. Um, what was your question? No, I would, well, you're, you're answering it. You know, we were talking about structural racism and just... I, because, because of the fact, I guess because of the areas of music that I was working in and because of the people that I was working with were, you know, it, I was in a predominantly black area of the music business working with black people a lot. I didn't 
personally run into a lot of that stuff because I'm white and because I don't think people would be comfortable saying uh, inappropriate things around me. Um, so I've, I mean, I've heard other stuff that's absolutely awful, but I've never heard that stuff in my presence. So I think if you really want to know about that stuff, you have to ask somebody black because they're going to have a million stories and I'm just going to say, well, there's that time that my my friend heard that. Mm, 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 mm. You know, I think as a white guy with black kids in the in a black business... You know, I'm probably not the guy to ask. There are people who run into this kind of stuff every day, you know, and and I'm probably a bit of a, a you know, a bit of a anomaly in that way. Well, I suppose you can absolutely talk about allyship. And I just I want to I want to shout you out because because I remember a situation so I can say as a woman who is black, who plays instruments and writes her own music, people often assume that I'm a singer um, and that I can't do anything else. Um, but I remember one time you wanted me to play keys for somebody that you were working with. And I remember specifically you said to me, I had to fight to get you to play keys because they didn't want another female taking away from the female singer. Yeah, I mean, that's so ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like the stupidest thing you've ever heard. Like, how much cooler do you think it is when there are a load of girls in a band? Because I think it's much cooler when there are a load of girls in the band. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And that I don't think that's being an ally, honestly. I think that's no work at all. I think that's just, like, thinking it was cool. Because the because here's the thing. <laughs> it goes back to, are you good enough? You were good enough. Uh-huh. So I was like, she should do it. She she should be. It's cool. It's like, you know, let's mix it up. You know, it looks great. Uh-huh. You know, not only can she play, but also it makes the band like cooler. More girls is cooler. You know? Yeah. If that's being an ally, then I mean, that's that's no work at all. That's just going, well, aesthetically, isn't this a sort of better vibe? You know, than the usual, like, one girl in a band singing and the rest of them is a bunch of dudes looking at their shoes. I mean, that's not work. That's just, like, not being blind. Well, you said... Go ahead. What you're saying is the backdrop to all of this is so turgid and dismal and stupid that, in fact, that is being an ally. That's how low the bar is. Me saying, hey, maybe there should be a girl keyboard player is like a massive move, you know, when it when of course it's not. Of course the bar should be higher than that. If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look or because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name, and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well, I was raised in London, and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese, and then they see my face, and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. 
We have anti-discrimination laws. Progress has been made. But governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so, what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation, with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, it's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it. And also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. And I think Airbnb have recognised that by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact. And secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time Black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. say I would say two things I would say I have generally had good experiences because but I think it's because I play an instrument so I have a certain level of and I speak a certain way which is a horrible thing to say but we have class issues in this country so I I have um so my experiences haven't been as you say turgid but I know people that have had very difficult situations but what the reason I give that example that you think is like well it's not a particularly big deal if you had decided to be a gatekeeper that is like what is it what's the what's the wizard in um in uh the hobbit the hobbit you shall not pass you know what I mean (laughs) if you if you had yeah but that's the wrong analogy you're not the monster you're the hobbit (laughs) I guess well I guess okay well I'm talking about the true I'm not the monster but the monster actually is them saying that there should only be dudes looking at their shoes that's the monster and I'm saying no you're wrong this is this is wrong and stupid but anyway maybe we should drop this analogy no 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 I no I think but I think the point I'm trying to make I don't disagree with you but I'm saying you could have been one of those people that said um, I don't think it's a good idea for there to be another woman here. And that then I I have an opportunity that I miss out on is the point I'm, I'm yeah, trying to make. No, I get that. And I've tried my whole life to put people 
in rooms that I thought were good enough to do the job, regardless of what they look like. But I honestly don't think that makes me a hero. It doesn't make me a hero. It just makes me, like, not as stupid as other humans, as other people in the, you know. And and honestly, I I don't know if that's around so much these days because people want there to be more women. People want there to be more, you know... People want there to be people of all ethnicities in these things because unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to cut that one, it's become rather vogue, darling. Yes, yeah. You've become rather trendy, you know. And again, that's got nothing to do with the fact that you're a really good, like, keyboard player, which is why I wanted you. I wanted you because I thought you were a really good keys player and I could give a shit about Sorry, no swearing. And I could, uh, I could <laughs> care less about what all that other stuff, you know. It's yeah, a, and the thing I is, could... I guess on a deeper level than that, there's a merit-based part to the music business, and that's mm-hmm. something that's that actually keeps the nepotism element out of the music business. Which is, are you good enough? It's a very binary mm. answer: yes or no. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, all right, then. So what, I mean, you actually mentioned something that you suggested with, you know, with the IVAs and PRS. What does activism that really brings about structural change look like that isn't, you know, get a girl to play the keyboard kind of thing? Well, it has to be grassroots. It has to be grassroots. It has to be kids. Kids are the only thing that ever changes any business. It's got to be the market, the kids, the consumers, the people who are buying the thing or at least consuming the thing through their parents' uh, credit cards on their mobile phones. You know, mm. it, it, it has to, you have to start off with seeding the lower part of any business with the thing that you want to be the agent of change. Mm. And so if you put in a load of committed, talented young women or however you wish to change it. In my case, Mm. this thing I'm working on is young women. Then in five years or 10 years, you'll have a bunch of, you know, of professionals in middle management. Mm. You know, I'm not expecting to shove out a bunch of the dudes who are above me or my peers Mm. because that doesn't work. You just look like a loon. Mm. And... And also, to a certain extent, things are changing, you know. So I would like to accelerate that change the only way I know how, which is through helping people have a career in the beginning. Mm. That would be the way I would be an activist. I think changing something from inside the thing is the way I can help the music business. I'm not a revolutionary. I quite like the music business. (laughs) Most of it. I just want to make it a bit better Mm -hmm. in a sort of non-pompous way because I don't Mm -hmm. think I have all that much say. I just know that I can help out a bit. Mm, It's interesting. I suppose, yeah, I'm just pondering, pondering what you're saying. I suppose I'm just, I, I, I think... The music industry as we know it, aside from sort of, excuse me, race and gender and all that stuff is changing. The format is changing. How people consume music is changing, which puts music in the hands of consumers. And I mean, you're talking about young people. I do wonder whether they are going to come up with 
a whole new industry or methodology methodology entirely that changes how we consume music anyway, that what we currently have won't be necessary? What do you think? You know, the music business was the sheet music business. People would buy a bit of music printed on a bit of paper, take it home and play it on their piano. That was the entire music business. Then, you know, other formats started to be invented, which led to a single vinyl, a 78, an album, which then caused everybody in the sheet music business to say, well, this is the end of the music business. But it wasn't the end of the music business. It was the end of their part of the music business. And then we've had the end of the music business is nigh about every five and a half years, every time we have a format change. We've, <laughs> it was the end of the music business when streaming got in. It was the end of the music business with MP3s. It was the end of the music business with CDs, with uh, laser discs or mini discs or cassettes or all of those things. It's always a business that's coming to an end. And yet we make six billion a year just in this country, six billion. Mm. So... You know, I I hate all of that because there's a misremembered nostalgia to it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, things were better. Where, like, no, things will change constantly. Your footing is not uh, guaranteed, nor should it be. And so these things change all the time. The market changes. And also, you know, kids don't want to be told what to do by old farts, nor should they. And so... You know, those things will just change. The way it looks will change because it should. I don't want to work in a 90, an organization from the 1970s. I remember them. I'm old enough to remember them. You know, when I'm in my 60s, some kid will look at me and go, well, why the hell am I listening to this guy? Which is exactly right. You know, like those things do evolve, should evolve. And we've got a responsibility, I suppose, to make sure they evolve into a more equal process. Um, but it takes a long time. That's why I like the idea of putting in a bunch of people who are talented and committed into the beginning part of it, because then in in five years I'll see them all, Mm. you know, and be like, look, this is great. They're they're in, you know, they're working, Mm. you know, rather than like, ooh, it needs to change from the top, which is then you're dealing with rich people who can, you know, affect your, you know, your life. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a bit sneaky, I suppose. Mm, that's really interesting. So thank you. I, I like to ask all my guests what lessons they have learned that we can learn from. And um, I just feel like, you know, you have been in this industry for a long time. You've watched it morph. You've had different careers, but they're all interconnected. You know, what lessons... And I think perhaps within the context of, you know, the theme that I'm talking about, sort of social change and anti-racism, what lessons have you learned that that we can learn from? I think that as a, as a European, a Caucasian, Jewish person, I think that, you know, what you have to learn is that change is good and that things have to equalise and that pendulums swing and it's not always about you and it's a good thing what happens and you know the buddhists say everything is everything is exactly where it should be 
And, you know, there's a Christian precept for, for that and there's a Hebrew one. And I sort of take faith in the great inevitability of progress, I suppose, where I think that, you know, the lessons I take from it is Proust had a thing where he said, you know, a man has to have been a real idiot in order to become a sage, in order to become wise. You have to have gone through all of these steps in which you completely embarrass yourself. And I really like that because I've spent a lot of my life embarrassing myself. Um, and so that doesn't make me a wise man, I guess. It just makes me somebody who's done some silly things. I'm glad I didn't have social media for a lot of it um, or CCTV. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I I don't know. I'm still learning all the time. I mean, you, you say I've had many careers. I've been making it up as I go along and been, mm. you know, fortunate enough to have a passion for for a thing I couldn't hold a touch of or smell. Mm. So I feel like I've been incredibly lucky and incredibly blessed, actually. Um, but it's been a lot of, you know, I just have my passion for something. That's all I have. That's all any of us have. You know, that's why you're good enough. Because you, cause you sat down every day at a keyboard and you would find new things in it every time you went to it. And, you, mm. every day, and even if you didn't, you stuck with it. So it's the same with me. I have an hour every day where I listen to a million new things and most of them are horrible. <laughs> Some of them are brilliant, but, you know, most of them aren't. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess perseverance is the only thing I've ever... It's the only thing I've, I keep learning about. You know, be good at one thing and let it kill you slowly, probably. So, okay, so I always, my last question, I, I ask people, what music are you listening to? You are an A&R person. So actually, I'm going to divide this because it's you. I want to divide this into two separate things, maybe even three. You're an A&R person. So people send you music every single day and you have to trawl through it. Who are you listening to that you're, that is like on the up and up that you're like, I'm really interested in this person? Uh, there's an, well, let's say unsigned first. Yes. There's a woman called Genevieve Dawson, mm -hmm. who's fabulous. She's brilliant. Um, she has a song um, called Carry It Slowly. Mm -hmm. And it's just lovely. It's just a lovely bit of music. She's a Scot. Um, she plays piano and guitar. And... She's just got a lovely, lovely voice. Um, there's a woman called Lady Blackbird, who's uh, from New Mexico, who lives in Los Angeles. Um, she's made a jazz record, which I just am obsessed with. Mm -hmm. um, that I think she's brilliant. She's mid-30s. She's got a sort of classic, like a Nina Simone, Tina Turner thing to her voice. She can really, really sing. And her interpretation of other songs, her interpolation of, of lyric, the way that she uses melody is, is 
quality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a band called The Clocks. I quite like the song of theirs. There's, I mean, honestly, this bit I could go on forever, to be honest. Okay, one more, and then I'm going to move. I'm going to ask you in a different context. So, one more. There's a kid coming called Zach Witness, who's brilliant dance thing, mm-hmm. just brilliant, just a sledgehammer of just you know huge amount of groove and it's great. So there you go. That's good. I like the name Zach Witness. That's a dope name. There's some great names actually. Zach Witness, Lady Blackbird. You know. It's very, very good. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so then my second part of this is what songs do you always go back to that you're like, oh, you know, that just you know, we all have songs like that. I listen to Night and Day, the Ella Fitzgerald version by Cole Porter when I'm checking out a room. If I need to know how a room sounds. Oh, really? I have Night and Day by Ella, Ella Fitzgerald's version, the Cole Porter song, but I play very loudly. I have um, The Way by Jill Scott uh-huh. for the same reason. If I want to hear a bass response, if I want to hear a high-end response of a room because I'm past my millionth play on it. Um, there's a song called Much Against Everyone's Advice, which I use the same for because it has a compression in the guitar part after the half of the first verse, which is like, I don't know how they did it. It's just like a a wizard made that. Um, What else? The Need to Baker giving you the best that I've got. Classic, classic, beautiful tune. Because... I mean, these are things that I come back to when I want to hear how something sounds and I'm constantly listening to how a room sounds or how I, how my own head sounds in my own head. Um, so, yeah, what else? That, I want to stick a pin in that because this is very interesting and you're the first person ever said that. When you say you want to hear how a room sounds, is this a room that you're going to be recording in? Or just listening. So you'll be like in your living room and you're wanting to hear how that, the room responds to a... Yeah. Interesting. For me, it's a very, um, like, a very tangible process, this listening to something. Right. I do a lot of listening to music. Um, But then also, you know, I like, you know, there's... I really love trashy things and I really love, like, you know, quality things. So, I mean, it's, it's all up in the mix with me. I can play you know, a lot of classical music, a lot of Mahler, a lot of Shostakovich, and then I can go for, you know, something, listen to the, the, the top 40, you know. So it's all music. That I mean, Bernstein was really smart when he said that because it's a really good distillation of, of all of it. Mm. You know, he said, it's all music and I love it all. Mm. And I mm. always think thought about that because when I saw the Bernstein doc, then the Bernstein documentary, I was still a kid and I'd had that in my head for ages and I never really had a way to uh, quantify it in words. It's all music and I love it all. I was like, mm. yes, that's right. You know, I think growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was a there was a certain amount of snobbishness about a catholicity of tastes, i.e., if you liked a load of different stuff, you were thought of as a bit weird. And I liked everything. You know, there were kids when we were growing up, when I was growing up, 
you know, you were an indie kid or you just like Prince or you just like Bob Dylan or you just like rock or you just like this. And I was like, no, I, I couldn't, couldn't possibly agree with that. My father had a room full of vinyl and, of course, I made my way through it all, you know. Mm. And, again, you know, that's the blessing of my life. But, mm. yeah, I, it's all music and I love it all. I, I think about that all the time. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant, you know. Mm. Leonard was onto something there. He was, and I think, I think that's, that's right. I, I, well, I agree with that. It's just, it's, it's loving music, like really, really loving music across the spectrums. The only music I cannot get into and I've tried is like trance music. I can't do it. I've tried, I've tried. You haven't been to any, you know, dirty Berlin nightclubs with me. That's your problem. Because <laughs> oh. honestly, if you get, if you hit the right note and you hit the right mood in a, in a you know basement of a Berlin nightclub, and you've been playing the same loop for five minutes, and you change it just slightly, just you slight change, then you'll you'll affect everybody in the room like you're knocking them over. That's interesting. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Um, and you know, there's a lot of uh, classical comparisons to trance. There's a lot of there's a there's a few little links in there we can get into that offline when we're you know if we're really getting into nerdville but i mean i have the same with heavy rock i can't get into heavy rock i've tried i understand people love it i what i do understand about it is the energy release uh-huh, uh-huh. the like ah you know like the <laughs> that is brilliant but i think there's so many other ways i can experience that energy release that's some people love it they're, they're absolutely obsessed with it they go to work listen to it in their headphones in the morning you hear them on the tube and it's like Wah! and you think wow you know how are you how's your day man you know <laughs> and like, i love this i love this stuff. but that's the same i mean i don't wake up and listen for instance to you know the 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 poppiest pop of all pops either and think you know okay this morning i need to listen to you know a, you know i guess a I'm trying to think of a pop record that BMG don't have because I'm trying to be nice to my current employer. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think I think it's where you place yourself. Some people love that. They wake up to it, they just want to hear that record. It's going to get them on their day. It's like a cup of coffee. Mm, true, true, true. Well, my friend climbed Everest listening to heavy metal because of the energy. I imagine it's very good in a war zone. <laughs> You know. <laughs> Lastly, what are your kids listening to? Because I'm always interested to know what, like, you know. You... My kids are a great A in our department. My kids uh, bring me stuff all the time that I love and that I've never heard of. And that mm. is huge. You know, whether or not that's success as as a, as a measure of success or as a measure of just work, they bring me stuff all the time. That's great because your kids are going to find stuff that you don't. Exactly. And they're also faster on the technology than you are. Mm. Um, my daughter found Billie Eilish way before I found Billie Eilish, and mm. you know, I was like, "Wow, who's this? She's amazing. Mm. She's amazing. She really is. Mm-hmm. She's truly fantastic." Mm-hmm. Um. My son loves Tyler, the creator, very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and Earl Sweatshirt and Green Tea Peng. And 
my daughter loves a band called Men I Trust. And there's a guy called Steve Lacey that they love. There's a guy oh, yeah. called Mac DeMarco that they love. There's Rex Orange County who they love, who I knew, but they really, uh, they really love him. My son loves Slow Time. My son loves All Drill, All Grime, um, you know, which sometimes I love. Um, you know, because so, some of it's fantastic. Um, and so they bring you stuff constantly and you have to keep your ears open because there'll be a tune playing next door and you'll go, mm, what's that? That sounds good. Mm. You know, but it's also, you know, when you want to play something, hey, that sounds like this. You know, and half the time they listen because half the time they don't want to listen to their old man. They want to play their music. Yeah. So, yeah, it's constant. It's a constant discovery process. Um, I do make them make me playlists uh -huh. on Spotify. And generally they're called the playlist my dad made me make. <laughs> Or, you know, you know, stuff like that. But it's great because it gives you a whole new, it gives you a, a, just a new source to find great stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Felix Howard, thank you so much for your time, for your thoughts, for your candor, for your non-trashness. You're a man and you're definitely not trash. Oh, I've been trash. I'm trying to be better. <laughs> a reformed, a reformed trash then. Thank you for, really, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, V. That was great, babe. Thank you so much to Felix Howard. You can follow him on Instagram and better yet, explore some of the new artists he mentions in our interview. I put a list in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we're talking about tattoos and scarification, about African feminism, about liberatory practices, about the body and telling our own stories, with Laurent Sessou and return guest Jessica Horn, founders of the Temple of Her Skin. There's a decorative element. I mean, it's decoration. And obviously you would never put anything on your skin permanently if you didn't think it was beautiful, mm. right? So mm. that's that's actually very important, right? Um, but for everybody, there really is, as you're saying, intentionality. There's something that people are processing, thinking through, working through as, as part of why they're doing it. The stuff that science can't make sense of, that nobody can really make sense of, on an everyday basis because it's so much deeper. But we can't deny it because we feel it and we know it's real because mm -hmm. we went through these processes with the help of our ancestors, our grandmothers. You know, they all showed up. Until next time. <laughs>